You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I am joined all the way from South Africa, Ivan Carter. Ivan, thank you for coming. Hey, hey Chris. Well, I appreciate being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. No, no, it, it's it, it's amazing, and you know, I think this is going to be an amazing, interesting discussion, specifically surrounding lions in Africa, and you know, obviously uh, one a, a beloved species. Just for our listeners, in the beginning, we always like to ask, you know, if you can just kind of give them a background and, you know, obviously I think you're, you're living in South Africa right now, but, you know, where'd you grow up and, and where did your interest in conservation begin? You know, Chris, I think that it, it, that's, that's really a very interesting question. My interest in conservation literally started as far back as I can remember as a little boy growing up in Zimbabwe in Southern Africa. Um, you know, we, we grew up in a, in a very rural environment where, you know, all creatures, great and small, were just fascinating to me. I used to love finding birds' nests and, 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 you know, I can remember writing letters home to my mother from boarding school, which the whole letter was about the birds that I'd seen and very little about my, my health or anything else that a normal parent was worried, would, would have been worried about. So, yeah, it, it, I was fortunate enough to have a very much of an outdoor upbringing in Zimbabwe. Went to boarding school for most of my life and, and luckily enough, very rural boarding schools where we, we had, you know, game parks on our boundaries of the school and, and huge wilderness areas to wander around in. So it, it was a very privileged upbringing. That was for sure. <laughs> no kidding. I'm like, yeah, you know, growing up in Africa, everybody's dreams to go down there on safari. <laughs> so, so you're in South Africa now, but it, it sounds like you travel all over. You know, we really do. We, we have a small foundation, the, the Ivan Carter Wildlife Conservation Alliance. And so we have a few projects around Africa. It certainly keeps me busy. And, and we, we end up going to a lot of the parts of Africa that people don't think of as wildlife areas, but those are the parts that need the focus. So yeah, I do travel a lot. I get to see some amazing sites and, and some wonderful, wonderful wildlife and ecosystems. And, you know, it just, just makes me realize just how hard we've got to work to make sure that's there for the next generation, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, yeah, the news doesn't seem good, but uh, we're going to get into, you know, the work that you, you're doing um, to, to be fighting for wildlife and fighting for these wild areas. This just popped into my head real quick, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have a favorite animal? <laughs> you know, I, I really do. I, I mean, I really, really love elephant. I mean, anytime you're around okay. elephant, that that's a big deal. But, you know, to be honest, uh, what's more exciting to me is to be around big animals in an ecosystem that's intact, 
because so often we, we look at animals in a place where they're either overpopulated or unbalanced or there's particular species missing or, or whatever it is. And so you're very often in one of these areas, and I hate to say it, but from a scientific perspective, you can probably relate to this. You feel like something's missing if you know too much. You can't just sit there in a safari vehicle and say, look at these beautiful antelope in front of us. You go, wow, why, where are the giraffes? They should be here. Or where are the elephants? Or where are the lions? You know, and so I think that, that there's a great responsibility in maintaining intact ecosystems, irrespective of the, 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 the animals that are actually there, you know? Oh, no. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, even here in, you know, in the U.S., we uh, just a few weeks ago talked about the bison, you know, it used to be millions. And now there's a few thousand, you know, and, and just our ecosystem with the apex predators, which we're going to get into in here in a second, and their key role in the ecosystem all the way down, uh, you know, to beaver. So, yeah, definitely can relate. So, yeah, and I, guess and I think that with, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Go, oh, no, no, you go, you go. You know, I was just going to say I was lucky enough in February to be in Utah on a bison collaring exercise where we were gathering biological data from a bunch of bison in the Henry Mountains with the, with the, the, the Utah fish and game. And, you know, really when you look at it, it's amazing at the hand of man that 80 million of the continent's large animals can disappear. But also at the hand of man with all things being correct and, and with careful management, we can bring it back. So I always say that you know, humans have got the, the ability to completely ruin an ecosystem, but the right humans have also got the ability to bring it back. That is an awesome point. That is, that is a great point. And that is, you know, it's part of what we do, you know, spreading the message, but talking to uh, people around the world that work in conservation like yourself, that when we do come together and look at multiple solutions, these ecosystems can bounce back. And I guess that's going to lead me into the story. And really, you know, the crux of the interview today is, is going to talk about this lion relocation you were involved in in Mozambique, correct? Yes, it was in Mozambique. Actually, there's a giant river in Africa called the Zambezi River, which was an ancient trade route, a river lots with, with lots of myth and mystery and, and history around it. And it's right where that river empties itself into the ocean. That's the ecosystem that we were looking at. Right, right. So... You know, this was, and I'll post the the story from National Geographic, and and it's very amazing. And I guess I'll sum it up really quickly, but really, if you can kind of get into the details, you were involved with relocating twenty four lions from South Africa into Mozambique, correct? Yes, that's exactly right. Right. Yeah. So and and, and so when you look at that, it's it's not just as easy as loading some sheep in the back of a truck. <laughs> You know, and, 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 you know, really there's a lot of moving parts to it. I mean, aside from the paperwork, which is enormous to make sure that the veterinary permits are in place to move the lions from their origin right to a, a quarantine boma in South Africa, identifying genetics that are pure, that are wild, that have never been in captivity, that really are sustainable genetics with enough variety making sure that one one takes them from healthy populations where, you know, we're not carrying unhealthy lions and putting them together. So there's a lot of vet checks, a lot of paperwork, a lot of transport permits and, and relocation permits and darting permits and dangerous drug handling permits. And I, I can't even tell you the paperwork nightmare 
aside from the logistics, I mean, how do you get 24 lions, you know, a couple of thousand kilometers away? <laughs> it's terrifying right. logistics. Right, right, right. So I, I guess the my initial question was, you know, I guess we can lay out the picture. What happened in Mozambique? And, and you know, I guess what happened to their lion population? Perfect. So, so let's, let's start, if you don't mind, at 60,000 feet. So 60,000 foot view, we had a civil war in Mozambique that based on the complete collapse of the infrastructure, people were forced into post, into poaching. There was no other way to feed themselves. And so they relied on, you know, the wild populations of, of animals to, to feed themselves. And so the population of animals in this particular area was completely decimated probably down to about 5% of what it once was. The war disappeared in the, in the early, you know, probably the, the, the mid to late 80s. And in the early 90s, the government of Mozambique said, okay, we're ready to start tourism. We're ready to start bringing people back and let's have a look at some of these wildlife areas. But now, of course, you've got wildlife areas completely devoid of wildlife, which is a problem. So, you know, it takes an incredible conservationist and visionary to really see what it could possibly become. And so that's where the story in Katada 11 started. As, as I mentioned, it's on the eastern seaboard of, of Africa, right where the Zambezi River enters into the, the ocean. You've got about a two million acre ecosystem of amazing forests and wetlands and floodplains. And the only problem is there was no wildlife there. So Mark Haldane, who's, who's the owner and proprietor and, and him and his partners in Zambezi Delta Safaris came into the area and they decided, well, if they were to protect this area, they thought the wildlife could probably come back. Well, fast forward, you know, 24 years and we've seen a 3000% increase across all the species. Some specific examples are things like sable. On the very first game count, which was conducted by WWF back in the day, in the, in the mid-90s, they counted 44 sable. And today there's close to 4,000. The, the buffalo population in the entire ecosystem was probably just over 1,000, somewhere around 1,200 individuals. And today it's thought to be somewhere around 25, 26,000 animals. So you've seen this remarkable recovery in wildlife. But of course, the one thing that was missing where there wasn't enough, enough, you know, foundation population to come back was the apex predator, the African lion. Right, right. And, and so you're, you're, you're just saying in, in essence, they just protected this area and on their own, the animals regenerated. The, you didn't, At, they, I guess the, the government didn't have to import animals, uh, to allow that increase. No, and, and so, here, here's what was a very interesting piece of all of that is that what one found is as the years went by, just by, by protecting the area from poaching, a lot of animals moved into the area. The simple math will tell you that 44 sable cannot possibly turn into three and a half thousand, um, right. in, in 25 years. It just can't happen, right. which means that right. wild, wildlife is very resilient, Chris. And so, it, it came back and, and obviously it found its way through the community areas. It found its way around the, the, the potential poaching hotspots and it came back. And, you know, one of the, the drivers for the financial end of that model was the, the commercial hunting aspect of it, which meant that mm -hmm. there was always an inflow of money that was in turn paying the anti-poaching, paying for the infrastructure, paying for the protection of these animals. 
And as the animals got more, the quota and the offtake was able to be increased to the degree mm. that right now today, last year alone, 33 tons, 33 metric tons. So that's over 60,000 pounds of meat was distributed into the local community, which is way more than they could ever get for poaching. And so it's really been one of the greatest success stories where the, the increase in wildlife has led to an increase in quota. The increase in quota has led to the ability to keep people off the breadline and, and stop them from poaching. The money that's derived from the hunting model in that area has paid for the anti-poaching ranges. It's paid for a lot of the science and research and, and everything that goes into the holistic preservation of an area. And all of a sudden we sit there in an area that's probably what ha has one of the highest biodiversities and, and populations of wildlife anywhere in Africa. Right. So, you know, I'm sitting here. Okay. So I'm in, I'm in the United States, obviously. And, and, you know, we sit here and we hear poaching. And when I hear poaching, I think of elephants. I think of rhinos, uh, pangolin, some of these really heavily trafficked animals. But can you talk about the locals poaching to, and you mentioned it earlier, just to survive. So what species are they targeting? And obviously it's had a, a, a huge detrimental impact. So, so let me start at the beginning, Chris. Let, let's define mm -hmm. poaching, if you don't mind. So in mm -hmm. my mind, poaching is the illegal killing of wildlife. Killing of wildlife that's outside of a regulated quota. Killing of wildlife that's, that's above and beyond what should be killed. Killing of wildlife for any reason other than ethical, sustainable offtake. And so... As we identify what poaching is, you can identify different species and different reasons for poaching. So you've got animals that are always in the news, things like pangolins, elephants, rhinos, lions for their bones, animals where their body parts will fetch a high price very often in Asian markets where, you know, people are, are using them for, for perceived medicinal value. And I put emphasis on the word perceived. Um, and, and that's one aspect of poaching where it's everything from gall, bear gallbladder to tiger bones to ivory rhino horn pangolins. Then you've got the other side of the poaching, which is what we call subsistence poaching, which is the family that goes and poaches for food. And they cross over a fence or a boundary, or it's in an area where they already live, but they don't have a permit, there's no quota, and they go and they kill an animal. So you could argue that one is probably a worse crime than the other, but at the same time, any time any one of these is done at any scale, it runs the risk of wiping out a population or even a whole a whole gamut of wildlife. And so really, when you look at it, a, a line of wire snares, so a very popular way of poaching in, in, in the Zambezi Delta is they would build a fence um, of, of brush and then there would be gaps in the fence and in each gap would be a wire snare. So you could imagine whatever animal came by would walk into a snare because it couldn't get through the fence. And that's exactly how the lion population was eliminated several decades ago was, you know, you've got some dead or dying animals in these wire snares. The lions hear them or smell them, come and investigate, look for a gap of their own in the fence. And of course, the whole pride gets gets soaked up by by the wire snares and, and you know, their body parts are sold on and, and, and so on. So two very distinct styles or, 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 or distinct motivations for the poaching. One is just the money. 
and the other one is 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 food for a potentially hungry population. Right, survival. I mean, you know, basic needs, you know, basic human needs is to eat. So, you know, it, it's easy for us in in the West or to point fingers and say, "Oh, stop that." But when you're starving and you have children, I'm sorry, I'm going to go and and get what I can for for my family. So, you know, it's good to hear that, you know, the the populations behind this effort to get back to the lion relocation, because it's such a fascinating story. Reading the the article National Geographic, you know, you talk about this huge rebound in in a lot of ungulates and hoofstock, but no apex predators, right? So, if you can kind of talk about from your view the benefit of having an apex predator in that ecosystem. So, it, Chris, in the very beginning of the interview, we spoke about my favorite animal. And mm-hmm. spoke about the fact that it's more about the balanced ecosystem and, and the joy of being able to restore something back to what it was a hundred years ago before man came in and wrecked it. That is 99% of the motivation behind all of this. And, and what it is, is, you know, the circle of life was broken. There was no apex predator. Everything was surviving to old age. You know, you've got animals that are potentially not the strongest of the herd, but they're getting to survive because there's no predators. There's nobody chasing them around. There's no, no, no potential threat outside of possibly a drought. But we, we're in an area where, where that's very, very seldom the case. And so, you know, you really do get an amazing amount of balance by the reintroduction of an apex predator into an area like this. And so, you know, I think that was the primary motivation for it was to see an area fully restored back to its natural natural balance, which we're still a way off. The lions haven't been there long enough to have to have, have, have be, a, be considered fully populated yet. Um, but certainly that was the motivation, Chris. Right, right. And, you know, one thing we, we've talked about and is the reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone Park here in the United States and the benefits of the wolves to the, the ecosystem. And scientists have, have measured data over many years that they've completely restored the balance. Whereas, you know, you had huge populations of elk and deer, you know, ruining riverbanks, things like that. The reintroduction of wolves has completely revitalized that ecosystem. Now beaver are back, all these other small mammals. So yeah, I, I get it. I get the, the benefit of having those lions there. I think an interesting aspect of the, of this story is how did you get local buy-in to get the locals to go from, you know, not having lions there to, okay, we'll have some lions put in. So, so let me back up for one second, Chris, and let's, let's whiz back up to, to 60,000 feet and look down over Africa. So the real reason that the African lion is under threat today, the reason that they at what, what a lot of scientists will tell you is an all time low is not because of hunting. It's not because of any one of the many reasons it's cited. It's purely because of human wildlife conflict and it's purely because of habitat loss. So as the human element grows across Africa, I know that it's taboo to say that, but it's the fastest growing population on the planet right now is the African population. Remember that a huge number of the tribes put immense value and in fact, all of their value in cattle and livestock. So a lion comes along and starts eating through your bank account, you're going to want to eliminate that lion. And so the poisonings, the sparings, and, and, 
you know, lions just don't go well with cattle. They don't go well with livestock, which has led to this drastic decline of lions. You know, you might get a lion in a national park or a pride of lion that venture out into the nearby herds of cattle and that pride will never come back because as soon as they start eating into someone's bank account, just like you and I, you know, a stranger mm -hmm. comes in and starts rooting around in your vegetable garden, you get rid of that guy. So, so basically, one of the greatest attributes to this area for the introduction of lions is the fact that there's no livestock. And there's no livestock because there's an insect there called the tsetse fly. And we talk about balance mm -hmm. all the time. But the tsetse fly carries a carries a, a, a virulent disease that eliminates cattle. And so the fact that we're in a very strong tsetse belt means that there's no cattle and goats. And really, when you look at it, the incidences of man-eating lions, although they're the thing of, of myth and legend, it's very, very, very seldom that man and lion um, have conflict outside of having livestock somewhere in that equation. So without livestock, you don't have that conflict. And so the local community, whilst they were skeptical, they also embraced the fact that these lions were going to come back. And for one particular reason, and that is that there's this legend of the spirit lions in the area where a lot of them believe that their ancestors are in lions. And a lot of them believe that there were lions there all the time. They were just spirit lions. And so the reintroduction of lions, funnily enough, the thing that came out the most strongly was the fear that the wild lions that we were reintroducing them they weren't going to get on very well with the spirit lions. And, you know, Chris, one of the things that I wanted to point out earlier in the conversation is mm -hmm. the only conservation measures that are actually successful today across Africa, across anywhere in the third world, are conservation measures that take careful and full, full account of what local tribes and customs and feelings and beliefs and perspectives actually are. And so you can't tell somebody stop poaching unless you give them an alternative way to feed their family. You can't understand whether or not they're going to embrace the lions without spending hours sitting with the tribal leaders under a mango tree, drinking tea, understanding their fears and addressing those. And so we actually had a team of scientists that for, for many, many months before the introduction, Every single individual in the community had an opportunity to voice their concerns. We took photos of lions in there. A lot of them didn't know what a lion was. They had these, these big mythical ideas of what they were. Um, we, we had the school kids, you know, doing projects on the lions and really making them understand that these lions were a good thing. They were going to bring some extra tourism. They were going to bring some extra money into the area. They were going to bring some extra jobs. And, and so by the end of it, even the most skeptical, I'm not going to say that they were excited that the lions were going to come, but the most skeptical of them had accepted the idea, Chris. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. a very different place to where we are today, where here we are almost a year later. We haven't had a single human lion conflict. We haven't had a single incident. We haven't had a single, you know, crossing of swords between the lions and the human element. And so really, when you look at that, um, you know, now everybody's completely relaxed. Most of them still haven't seen the lions because they're staying in the wildlife area, not coming into the human area, you know. Right. And, and exactly. It's such a great point. It's 
looking at this, you know, I, I now have a global perspective from Africa, you know, to South and North America, all the way into Asia. And I think the biggest thing with conservation, like you said, is get the locals involved. That is step one, because, you know, I can throw as much money as I want at a problem in Africa or Asia or wherever. If the locals don't buy in, it's going to fail. And I think what you're saying, this is another great success story where the locals have bought into this, you know, uh, reports coming out of Nepal. Nepal is leading the world in tiger and snow leopard and elephant uh, protections because the locals are bought in. You know, that's what the data is showing. So that's an amazing point, Ivan. I mean, amazing, amazing point. And, and so one of the really cool things about partnering with, with the Cabela Family Foundation is they really get that. And so on the front end of the whole project, we went to the community and we said, look, these lions are coming, but we've also got an opportunity for you to get some direct benefit. And so we upgraded the school. They knew that that was happening because of the lions. And for the first time ever in that area, we built a clinic that the government agreed to staff that right now today is a fully staffed clinic that in the past they would have had to walk for half a day or sit on the back of a motorcycle for many hours just to get to a nurse in a, in a very, in a very poor kind of clinic environment. And so there was immediately direct benefit with the conversation of here come the lions. And so that tangible benefit they don't want to think of something where they might get some money in 10 years time. They want to see some benefit right now today. And so as you point out, the success story in Nepal is because of inclusion of the community. Any area in Africa where you can say we've got a successful ecosystem that's, that's running, that, that the, the, the conservation is truly working, I can guarantee you it's because of cooperation with local communities it's not a project that's independent of them because the ones that are independent cannot work. No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, yeah, it's a great point. Great point. So you mentioned the lines have been there for a year. Can you just kind of update? You relocated 24. It was it two males and 22 females, if that's right. Uh, well, I remember. actually, actually it was, it was six male, six, six males, males and 18, 18 females. Um, we relocated them. They were in the bomas, in the, in the holding area. You know, lions have got a kind of an internal homing device, Chris. <laughs> and so yeah, if we had just, re if we had just released them, um, you know, think about this. You, you first of all catch them in the wild, which is, takes a lot of doing. It's, it's darting. It's hours and hours of, of, of nighttime with vets and, and baits and trying to call them. And, you know, then you put them in a quarantine boma where they get introduced to each other through, through the wire. Then they get integrated between each other. Then you put them on an airplane where they're fast asleep and you fly them for literally from the time we put them down on the transfer day to the time we woke them up was 10 and a half hours. Can you imagine that? Flying, <laughs> flying these lions that, you know, are asleep for 10 and a half hours. And, you know, so the first few days, they're going to be pretty groggy. You know, they're going to get acclimatized. It's different humidity. It's different weather conditions. So we kept them in the Bowmans for about six or eight weeks. And then we released them a very soft release. There was no, you know, they, they were just, they, they just literally walked out into the field. And funnily enough, um, they formed into prides and, and we, a lot of what we thought might happen didn't happen. Um, there's still a lot of movement. They haven't completely settled into groups yet. Um, but what, what's really interesting is, 
you know, as they got out there, they started, you know, forming into these prides. We found very sadly, two of the males went on a giant walkabout. I mean, they were covering, you know, 10, 20 miles a day, just, just walking, checking out the area. And unfortunately, one of them did walk into a snare. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we lost one fairly shortly after release. But in an interesting turn of events, Chris, that led to such an awareness in the area. You know, the Mozambique newspapers picked up on it. Social media picked up on it. And all of a sudden, the global awareness, when I say global, let's not say global, the, the country's awareness mm-hmm. of the poaching epidemic at the expense of this one individual lion um, it, it, it almost, I, I'm, I don't want to say this, but it, it was almost worth it for the exposure that one got mm-hmm. on the wildlife dilemma. And so, you know, that created a huge buzz. Um, since then, we've got three and possibly a fourth lioness that's actually got cubs. Um, we started seeing their behavior. A lot of them are collared, Chris. We, we've got lots of collars on the lions. And so the data sets that those collars indicate, um, Will show us that, that they, they possibly have cubs and, and the, the Cabela family foundation fund a, a, a bunch of helicopter time so we can get out into the field at this time of the year. It's too wet to drive, but we can actually physically put eyes on them and make sure they're safe. And so we have actually seen uh, several groups of these cubs. The largest group we know of is three individuals. Um, it might be more. The bush is thick and we, we, we may, may have missed some, but, um, so there's, there's a, certainly one female that's got three cubs and we, we know of two others that have got two each, possibly a third. So, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, Chris, as a scientist, what is success? So there's lots of milestones of success. One is identifying a feasible population to relocate. The second success is actually doing the relocation. The third milestone is, of course, releasing them all intact and healthy. The fourth milestone is, is getting them to start forming prides. And I guess you could say this is the fifth milestone where we're starting to see some babies on the ground, which is, you know, super exciting. And, and Mark Haldane and the guys at Zambezi Delta Safaris, you know, they, they do an amazing job of monitoring the lions. We've got scientists on the front line, you know, making sure that they're putting eyes on them, managing the data sets because it's the largest reintroduction of, of an apex predator ever in Africa, which means that, mm-hmm. you know, the lessons learned from something like this can be amplified and taught further downstream. And, and hopefully other people are going to look at this and learn from it. But, you know, hopefully the next milestone is going to be seeing several other females dropping their babies. And then, of course, the females getting into their second litter and the babies themselves starting to have, have their firstborn. But, you know, many, many, many of the models, Chris, that we have analyzed that, that have been generated by people like Oxford to do, you know, predator growth studies and, and whatever you plug in all of the variables, they, they point upwards of, of two or three or even 400 lions here within a decade and a half, you know? Wow. 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 Yeah. So I, I guess that, that was my kind of my next question. What's the outlook look like? I, before we kind of jump into how we're, you know, how the park's going to manage this in the long term. I guess my question is, you know, for our listeners and, you know, we always talk about ecotourism, good places to go is, would, would you suggest Mozambique as a good place today uh, to go visit uh, some of these parks? And the reason I ask that too is, you know, a place like Rwanda went through a horrific civil war in the early nineties. Everybody's aware of that. 
today it's one of the safest countries in Africa from what I'm told. And people can go see mountain gorillas. And so we've talked about that. Would you say Mozambique is, is really a great place to go see some of these animals? No, it's a fantastic place. It's a place that Chris is, is, you know, very, very safe. It's easy to get in and get out. It is a place where the, the infrastructure is, is still underway and, and being built. And so infrastructurally, many of the national parks in, in Mozambique have still got some infrastructure to build, but, but overall, from a safety perspective, it's fantastic. From an adventure perspective, it's off the chart. I mean, just a magnificent place to visit. And, you know, as you talk about tourism, Chris, you know, I, I want to address kind of the elephant in the room here that everybody mm -hmm. wants to hear about. And that is the two types of tourism. So mm -hmm. I like to call them consumptive tourism and non-consumptive tourism. But at the same time, they one and the same because people will talk about hunting as consumptive tourism and non-hunting as, as ecotourism. But in fact, really, when you measure the footprint between both, there's a bunch of different things that one needs to consider when you talk of footprints. So in an area like Qatar 11, without the hunting model generating the money that it does, we wouldn't be able to include the, the protection that we do, and this project would have never come to fruition. You would end up, you know, you would have still been sitting there with two and a half million acres with hardly any animals in it. Other areas of Africa absolutely thrive on non-consumptive tourism. And yet at the same time, as we look at some of the real hotspots in Africa, the impact of a 20-bed lodge with 50 staff members and the sewerage and the, the water use and the impact of putting a water hole in front of the lodge that, that gets pumped you know, year-round and, and the impact of the wildlife on the vegetation, there's nothing we do as human beings that has no impact. And so it's measuring what is considered a, a sustainable impact or an acceptable impact based on the financial return that's getting plowed into the conservation of a given ecosystem. And so what, what I always like to do is I, I, I tell people when they ask me about the hunting, let's not talk about the hunter, but let's talk about the hunting model and how the hunting model provides the financial resources to be able to recover an ecosystem. And so, you know, it, it's it's a very important part of what goes on in the Zambezi Delta. It's an important part of the anti-poaching that we can distribute this free meat that is a byproduct of the hunting. And the, the, the money that the hunter will pay to come and do that goes into the anti-poaching. It goes into the entire the entire ecosystem preservation, you know. So let's go. Let's. Uh, this is the can of worms that uh, we've been waiting for. I wanted to build up to it. You know, it, it's it, it's a difficult topic for I guess personally for me, uh, my partner Angie and I, and we had a uh, a celebrity uh, animal host Corbin Maxey over a year ago. We did a an episode on trophy hunting and the benefits or drawbacks. And so Angie and I did a lot of digging, and we couldn't find the economic benefit. And, and that doesn't mean that it's not out there. And we admitted that it was, you know, what is the benefit to conservation and to the animals? And, and I think, you know, it's an important topic to discuss and, and it's not something we should avoid because like I said, in the beginning conservation, it's going to take a lot of different angles. There's not one way to do it because the one way to do it is not working and, and animals are, are, are disappearing quickly at an alarming rate. So when we talk trophy hunting, I guess my first question for you, because this is, this is my concern. 
And, uh, you know, how do we, as conservationists, people that care, how can we be sure, I guess, you know, and this, in, in, this microcosm in, in Mozambique or, or the, the work that you're doing with them, obviously it sounds like it definitely benefits the locals, but how can I be sure, say in, in Tanzania or in Botswana or some of these other countries that that hunting model is actually benefiting the people and the wildlife? So I think that's a really interesting question, Chris, and let me kick it back to you. How can you be sure that a photographic lodge is benefiting the people and the wildlife? Sure. No, it's true. It's true. Absolutely. It's, it's, I think the, the challenge that, you know, say the Cabela Foundation and, and, and then the ecotourism or the people that promote ecotourism, the challenge is you have to, you know, show where's the money because we always say when it's not about the money, it's about the money. And if you don't generate revenue, these animals are not going to be protected. The locals are going to go back to poaching. They're going to go back to surviving in these, in these environments. So hunting does generate a lot of money. I think our concern was how do we just ensure that money gets thrown back in, which it sounds like here it absolutely does, right? So I think that I think that Chris, you know, let, let me let me cite a couple of real examples mm -hmm. of what happens when hunting goes away. Um so in Tanzania as we sit right now, um so America a few years ago um because of a, of big public outcry decided to ban the importation of lion trophies, um, which to a lot of conservationists, there was, there was great applause and they said, okay, well, this is good because it's stopping too many lions from being shot. So Tanzania, whose hunting model was upheld by the revenue generated by lions, saw many, many of its outfitters not able to continue in business. So they got out of business and they handed these concessions back to government. Government looked at that and went, well, we don't know what to do with this. The, the human populations, the villages and whatever started putting pressure on the government and saying, look, this land has been sitting empty now for years. We want to resettle it. So there's a very serious move afoot now to resettle these abandoned hunting blocks in Tanzania, which could result, Chris, in losing upwards of 15 million acres of wildlife land to resettlement. And that's because the hunting model doesn't work anymore because of a ban in the first world and, and a decision that the first world made without proper consultation of the third world and a decision that's had these enormous unintended consequences. So, you know, one of the things that, that I will tell you is that, you know, it's really hard to follow the money because in every industry, there's good, there's bad, there's ugly and there's spectacular. True. And so an area like Zambezi Delta, if you were to go there and just see the numbers of game in, increasing to the degree that they have, you've got to say, okay, this has to be successful. This can't happen unless money is coming back. It physically is not possible. And then you go into the community and you see that, you know, there's a plowing project, there's a beekeeping project, there's a, you know, a clinic, a school, they've got road networks, they've, they've got jobs, they've got employment. Um, there, there's distribution of wealth in, in several different ways. Um, you, you look at that and you say, okay, here's a model where if you look at it, it really is working and it's working spectacularly well. Um, what I would ask is, you know, if you look at a photographic lodge, funnily enough, just because there isn't the emotive response to the way that they're generating their revenue, people are not asking the hard questions. And yet a photographic lodge 
If you look at the road network that's required for the seven or eight vehicles to all go on their game drives in the afternoons, if you look at the impact of the, the water use, the sewerage system, the staff ingress and egress onto the property, the, the potential, you know, building of, of water holes in unnatural places so that the wildlife viewing can be perceived as being better. And, and you can go down the list. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, no one is better than the other. They both have enormous impact on the ecosystem, but one is under scrutiny while the other one is not. And, and, you know, one of the things I always say, Chris, is that the moment that the bullet is in the air is the moment that generates the, the most response. It's the time that money changes hands. It's the time that hunting becomes killing. It's the time that everybody throws their hands up because you know, this is the part that nobody wants to talk about and that, that generates this enormous emotional response. But at the same time, if we look at areas, there, there's a lot of failing ecosystems with no hunting that are being overrun by too many tourists. And so where is the balance? And to your point, it's horses for courses. You know, one ecosystem may not have the best land use, may not be photographic tourism, Another ecosystem, it may absolutely be the best land use. And so to, to come back full circle, when the Cabela Family Foundation looks at these projects, I can tell you firsthand that the, the, the important aspects of what they look at is, you know, is this going to lead to more wildlife and a healthier ecosystem? And not just a wildlife ecosystem, but the human ecosystem, the balance of the whole thing. And is it something that's going to have a future? And so, what, what we're very proud of with Zambezi Delta Safaris is the fact that it really is a flagship and, and, and it's leaving a very, a very broad trail to be followed by, by other potential outfitters and other potentially broken areas where there's great hope at the end of this, 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 this tunnel. You know, areas that have been poached out that have been, you know, decimated by war or, or civil unrest or poaching or whatever it might be. There's hope because it can be done. They are doing it. And, and I think that it, it lives to tell its own tale. It's not something we have to say for it. You know, the people are, are, are in good shape. The wildlife is in, in incredible shape. And it, it looks like it's got a very bright future, Chris, you know. No, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, oh, Jesus, over a year ago, I interviewed um, somebody that worked in, in rhino relocation. And this was a topic that came up with black rhino and hunting a black rhino and, and she admitted, you know, and, and she's, you know, conservationist to the heart. She slept out in the Bomas by herself in the wilderness of Africa. And she talked about, you know, trophy hunting and there are places that do it right. But, you know, there's other places, like you said, that they just pocket the money and the locals or the locals never see it, stuff like that. My thing would be, places like in, in the Zambezi river system you're talking about that does it right. We need to promote those areas. We need to promote those outfits. So people feel like, Hey, I can support this because you're seeing the benefit, right? I mean, all this money is going right back to the locals. It's going right back into the ecosystem. And, you know, this is a success story. And I, and I think, you know, sitting here listening to you and, and reading about this story to me, this is where trophy hunting will work and should work. And this is, this is the model that should be implemented throughout the world, really. You know, I think that, I think that one thing that I'd love to see if often people say to me, what's the one shift in perception you'd like to see from the 
modern population. Chris, I would like people to start looking at wildlife and wild places as a resource, not just as something we're not allowed to touch. Because in today's world, the only thing with a future is a resource. Because there will come a time as the human population grows all over the world where anything that is not a resource will go away. And so in some cases, we are utilizing that resource for people to come and look at it, have an impact on the ground that that resource lives on, but they come and they look at it and they take their pictures and they leave and they feel very good about the fact that they have left no footprints and taken only photos. Well, they all ate stuff. They all had plastic wrapped sandwich boxes. They all had, you know, they all used diesel to go on their game drives. They all, the, those roads are several, you know, only a couple of miles of road destroys an acre of ground. Um, and so they did absolutely have impact, but that's okay because it's a measured impact that is seen as acceptable in return for the money that it can generate to preserve the resource that was being utilized. Hunting mm -hmm. is the same way. As long as there's a measured impact that is seen as being sustainable and the financial return to the community, to the government, to the outfitter, to, to everybody else is seen as being an acceptable amount in return for the impact, I think that we're going to see these things thrive. And so, you know, if you were to say to me, Ivan, coming back to the, my opening point, what one thing would you like to see changed? The people that live in downtown New York that are tweeting about stopping hunting need to look around themselves and ask how many, how many wild animals, wild organisms and natural ecosystems exist within 500 yards of where they are tweeting from. Because it's okay to destroy Manhattan Island, but it's not okay for somebody in Africa to kill an animal to eat and to, to, to feed the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah, I, and I sense the frustration. I, I, I understand. I mean, it's, we, you know, in, in the first world, like you said, we, we do a lot of finger pointing and, you know, it's like in, in our podcast, we talk about Africa. We talk about Asia. This week we're, we're talking, you know, Australia and, and it's easy for us to point fingers and say, Oh, you're not doing it right. When, like I, I said, in our own backyard, we decimated bison and we're still, we have wildlife conflict where I live with coyote. You know, they're native yep. here, you know, and we're in their land and yep. there's no more, you know, grizzly bear in California. So. It's easy to point the finger and, and, and I think, you know, people need to keep an open mind because we need to seek many solutions. I mean, I'm sitting here two years later after doing this week in, week out. I see the global, I, I see the global outlook and it's not good. It is, it is horrific. No. It is a horrific story. So, you know, if trophy hunting can actually go into an area like this, regenerate it, get the locals behind it, and it's generating a ton of income, what it sounds like, to support these animals, then that is a model that I know I would support, I know my partner would support, and, and that's what we discussed, you know, trying to find solutions, and it's not just one thing. Um, and you know, to be and fair, I, 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 oh, sorry. No, 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 go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I, I, I was just going to say, go ahead. No, 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 and sorry, I, you know, <laughs> I want you to do the talking, not me, but I do want to be fair to you, no. too. Because I, I recently, this was last week, I was watching a video, I, I think it was in Kenya, I don't remember where it was. There was literally 10 trucks around two lions. And and then as soon as the lion took off, the trucks all followed it. And, and, and I looked at that for a second and I said, huh, that sucks. <laughs> that's, that's too many people, you know, you know, within 20 feet, you know, uh, of a lion. And I just, 
yeah. I and mean, so is that, is, that, yeah. is that actually sustainable use of that lion is the question. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's like you, you, we need the money to be generated so we can support the locals and the infrastructure. And like you said, pay for, or in the article, you, you know, you talk about paying for the anti-poaching patrols, the fence, all of this stuff takes money. It's just not going to happen. Yep. And conservation organizations cannot funnel it. They, they, they can't afford this around the world as much as they're trying. So yeah, I think, I think there's a place for it in, in my opinion, you know, now, if my listeners agree, I don't and, know. We'll see. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think that the most important thing, Chris, is is we, we have to be true to ourselves and true to conservation. And most importantly, Chris, we have to be true to what works. If we find a model that is not working because the money's not going where it should or the quota is not being adhered to or the the activity is leading to an unhealthy ecosystem with less wildlife, we need to hit the brakes. On the contrary, if something really is working, there's more wildlife, the ecosystem's getting healthier, the community's engaged and, and responding well and benefiting directly, we need to say, okay, this works. Let, let's, let's see, how can we replicate this? How can we expand this model? Because, you know, the, the, the sad and, and direct truth is that Nobody wants to go to Africa for their precious two weeks off and spend a huge amount of money going to an area where they don't see a lot of animals. And yet those areas very often, the, what I call the badlands of Africa, those are the areas where the hunting model thrives, where if you count the, if you count the income generated over a given amount of time, whether it's a year, whether it's a decade, very often they, they're very comparable a very high density wildlife area will generate the same amount of money as a low density area will through hunting, um, one doing photographic, one doing hunting. And so we've got to look at it to your point earlier, which I really, I, I, I love the fact that you said this. It's horses for courses. It's, it's different solutions for different areas. You've got to take into account the tribal perceptions, the, the tribal beliefs. You've got to sit under the mango tree. You've got to figure out what works and you've got to figure out what works for that area. And it may not work anywhere else, but certainly in the Zambezi Delta with Mark Haldane and, and Zambezi Delta conservation initiatives that are going on there, it's truly thriving. And, and as we see it right here and now, it, it really is working. Now, and I, to, to, to go back to, to your point, I know there was a study and that was one of the benefits we talked about uh, in our trophy hunting discussion was areas in Africa where there is no ecotourism, but there is hunting. And it did seem to, to benefit that area greatly, you know, so, so that's, a, that's a very valid and, and good point. My, I, I got to ask this too. Are there any plans to introduce African wild dogs there? <laughs> we just covered them. Those things are suffering pretty bad out of your part of the world. No, they, they really are. And so to yeah. the north of us is Gorongosa um, mm -hmm. National Park, which is an ecosystem that's being recovered there as well um, with, with very, uh, to very great effect. They've reintroduced wild dogs there. Um, the wild dogs are doing very, very well there. One of the issues with wild dogs is they're a very, very far-ranging animal. So mm -hmm. they move great, great distances, which means that you know, our area, there, there still is community around the edges of our area. 
it would be impossible to keep the dogs as we stand today. Now, this situation may change in, a, in the coming years, um, but it would be very, very difficult to keep the dogs from, from you know, staying in the, the protected area. Lions are a lot more more easy to monitor and to follow. So, so that while there's no plans immediately to put dogs in there, certainly it's an ecosystem that as they, the population expands further north, I'm sure we're going to start seeing the dogs arriving on their own just because they are such a far ranging animal. So, so no, it's, it's an important, it's an important thing to all of us to see mm -hmm. every key role player in this ecosystem coming back and thriving. And, you know, one of the things that we, we discovered to great excitement, Chris, was, um, you know, last year we did a butterfly survey in the area and also funded by the Cabela Family Foundation. And, um, you know, just to see what unique attributes this ecosystem might have. And we discovered a butterfly, uh, actually a moth that hadn't been seen since the 60s. Um, <laughs> and we found we found over 10 specimens of it. So, you know, again, it's an ecosystem where you could quite easily say that by preserving the ecosystem for the lions, all of these ancillary beneficiaries, the frogs and the, the, the spiders and the butterflies and everybody else is getting to thrive because, you know, the, the ecosystem's preserved for the lions. So using the face of a lion to put a focus on an entire ecosystem is just, I, I think, a marvelous conservation model, you know? Oh, it is. It is. And I, you know, it's, in the last month or two, I've been talking a lot about this too, is biodiversity. It's, it's, it's a big word that, you know, we're, we're talking about it and it's from the ground up. I mean, you have to look at the microbes in the soil and like, that's, that's wonderful to hear that the insect population, something no on nobody's radar, really. It's a, you know, insect scientist that when you protect an ecosystem and bring back all the species that belong there, you really see a revitalization of, of that land. So, so that's, that's an, that's an amazing point too. I was like, wow, that, that's really cool. A couple more questions before I let you go. I, I would assume there's hyena there, leopards, other predators that, uh, to help keep some of these ungulates in check. Yes and no. So, so there's a very small population of hyenas. Um, we certainly hoping that that will grow. We hoping that with the reintroduction of lions and the, the carrion and the scavenging opportunities that that will present will, will help with that. Um, there's a lot of leopard in the area. Um, we are about to embark actually in 10 days time on our first leopard collaring exercise where we'll be catching some leopards and putting some collars on them. We've got a camera trap survey that is, is, is going to be underway here as we get into the dry season to try and identify how many leopards are there or is there gaps? Is it, is it a species that we should, we should bring in? Are they healthy? Because you know, a leopard's such a secretive animal. It's one of the most mm -hmm. difficult ones to quantify. But at the same time, it's a really important role player in an ecosystem like this. So, again, you know, one of the things that we've been very, very fortunate with and, and one of the things that our foundation truly pursues, Chris, is I'm not going to call them donors, but they people who are prepared to invest in the future of wildlife. And so mm -hmm. they they investors, but they people who are engaged. I mean, Mary Cabello herself sat in the airplane with the lions. She, she was there for the release. She was there for the capture. She wants to see this thing succeed. She's coming back with other members of her family this year. And those are the kind of investors and supporters that really care if you found a new butterfly species or how many leopards there are or what is the future of this ecosystem. And I think that as long as there's people out there 
prepared to financially support some of these really big conservation. You know, it's a bold move. No one's ever done it at this at this level before. And so one, one there, there's a bunch of risks. I mean, it might not have gone like it like it went. Um, you know, you're pioneering a new deal. You you're moving. You know, this giant group of of large animals. Yeah. It yeah. might not have gone well. It did go well. But um, it, it takes people with an entrepreneurial spirit and a, and a pioneering mind to really be these bright lights of conservation across the continent, you know? Oh, and it's going to it's gonna echo through the decades. I mean, this story, the like you said, the science that's being generated, the experiences that, that you're learning every day, and this has been only going on for over a year. So, yeah, it's going to be having a, a huge impact not only in Africa, but I can see this having an impact, you know, across the world, uh, all the data you're going to generate out of that. So, so thank you. I mean, it, it, it's an amazing story. I mean, an amazing, amazing story. It just, just a couple last questions, you know, and I ask this of all my guests because I, 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 it's, it's philosophical, but, you know, in your opinion, do we have a moral obligation to save endangered species or your wildlife in Africa? You know, I think that we absolutely do. And and I think that what would the world be like if we couldn't say to our kids, hey, we're going to go and see some animals this weekend. Now, you may, that may not be something that you ever do. But what would it be like if you couldn't sit and listen to David Attenborough's voice describe the Serengeti Plains or a coral reef? What would the world be like? But I also think that we underestimate the importance of healthy ecosystems. And, and I saw a, a, a meme the other day that was a very simple meme. And it was just a picture of a bee. And it just said, if they go away, we do too. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the reality is, I think we can underestimate the importance of what a lot of people will tell you, the lungs of the world, the forests of the world, the, the wildlife of the world. I mean, you know, think of a giraffe. Giraffe have gone extinct in seven different African countries. Nobody even knew that. You know, you've got these areas of, you know, two million acres where lions disappear and people are more worried about their social media following and, and the battery in their phone than they are about whether the last, you know, in, in July last year, the last northern white rhino sunk off the brink of extinction. Mm-hmm. I mean, that thing's the size of your dining room table. We're not talking about a little insect. It's a giant animal, but at the same time, we're applauding somebody for making a phone battery that can last for two days. Where <laughs> are we? Yeah, I mean, exactly. what's going on? Yeah. It's ridiculous, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that, that, so there's a quote that I really, really like, Chris, and it's something that motivates me every single day. And my, my field is conservation. I eat, drink, breathe, sleep conservation. We're talking about it all day. Every day I'm talking to donors or, or investors I'm talking to the front line, and and this is how that quote goes. The definition of hell is meeting the man you could have been, the man who could have had an impact that you never grasped. And I think that if we all think about that, and we all think about what does the wildlife on this planet really mean, what do these wild ecosystems mean? You know, I'd, I'd like to just say to everybody who's listening to this, just dare to dream for a minute, because because of a few fireside conversations that truly were a dream several years ago, today we've restored 2 million acres to the wild lion's home range because of a dream yeah. and a phone call to, you know, Dan Cabela and said, hey, do you think you guys could get beyond this? Why not? Why not ask? Why not dream? Let's just dream for a minute. And 
Of course, the wildlife is important because without the wildlife, the humans are going to going to disappear soon behind them because the wildlife are the very essence of of everything that's healthy on our planet. That that is an amazing point, and that is exactly what you know. Pretty much everybody I've interviewed has talked about. You know, if the wildlife goes away, we're going to go away. Something will survive. You know, it always does. Mother Earth will keep going, but yeah, the human race is at at risk. And I think people need to wake up. That, that's a great point. Great point, Ivan. Last question, and, and that is, you know, how can we learn more about what you do and, and help you in your efforts in Africa? They can learn a bit about what's going on day to day. They can they can see a blog on the on the lions. They can visit the 24 Lions website, which is 24lions.org. And they can buy $5 worth of fuel for an anti-poaching motorbike. They can buy a day's worth of flying in the anti-poaching helicopter. And so every person can actually invest in something like that. That's obviously of great help. But I think that everybody always looks to the money, Chris. We laughed and said, when it's not about the money, it really is about the money. Let's talk about the awareness for a minute. I think the most important thing that people can do is hop onto the 24 Lions Instagram account, see what we're doing, engage in it see what really works, get involved in the conversation because the conversation will lead to a solution. I'm not saying anybody's got to agree with my viewpoint. Absolutely not. I'm going to tell you what I think works. I'm going to tell you what does work, but, but get engaged, start, get, get in the conversation, go to the 24lions.org website, have a look at the scientific documents that we produce, look at our Instagram pages and, and, you know, have a look and, and engage. Post it, share it with your friends, because the more people that know what's going on, the more people that will care and the more people that will care, the better we can support these initiatives that really work. That's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I will definitely make sure I list this on our our website uh, with this interview and where people can do that. And I'm going to be following you here in just a second. As soon as I hang up this call, (laughs) I, you know, Ivan, it's, it's a fascinating conversation and I think this is going to generate a lot of discussion, uh, especially with our listenership and, you know, hopefully maybe we can have you on again in a few months or in a year to kind of see how the lines are doing and, and see what this generates with, with our listenership and people's concerns with, with hunting, because I, I would tell you, hunters do care about the environment. Hunters are conservationists. Most of them. I mean, they care about, you know, like you said, the Cabela Foundation. They do care. They absolutely do care. And not just, oh, I want a playground where I can go hunt. They they enjoy looking at wildlife. They enjoy uh, being in the outdoors. So, you know, to be fair to, to them, we have to tip our hat uh, to what they've done there and the impact, the positive and huge, huge positive impact that they're having. And I, I, this this study is going to be incredible, the data you're generating. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time uh, to call me all the way from South Africa <laughs> and uh, hope to have you on again in, in the future. Well, I really look forward to that, Chris, very much. And as I say, you know, the, the Cabela Family Foundation could not be better partners. Um, they're progressive. They're forward thinking. They're prepared to be pioneers and, and they really understand you know, what the importance of things like community benefits. So I appreciate very much you having me on the, on the show. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk through this and please, you know, let, let's keep the conversation going. Um, I'm very available. I'm, I'm on my Instagram all the time. Um, and, and certainly, you know, engage in this conversation all the time. So Chris, I, I look forward to coming back. 
Look forward to coming and showing you some photos one day, possibly face to face of some of the, the yeah. lions that were born in the Zambezi Delta. I, I, yeah, that, I, that's definitely on my bucket list now. So, so thank you, Ivan. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris.